what we have to share in today through the words of the Gospel of John, which through God's work in us through the Spirit may be God's word to us today. So from chapter 12, verses 20 to 27, I've added a verse to our reading. Let us listen. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew, and then Philip and Andrew went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now, Jesus said, my my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we enter into this sermon, I want to pause first and just share um, some news uh, about a longtime member of Westminster. Her name is Valerie Laux. We knew her as Val. Um, In recent years, she left the area to live with her daughter Karen in Colorado Uh, and Karen reached out yesterday to say that she was entering her last her last days in hospice care Uh, and we were able to have a moment we shared in the Lord's the the 23rd Psalm and remembering the Lord being our shepherd and uh, Val suffered from memory loss but when we got to the end of the passage uh, where we said surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. I heard this word forever, as she said, forever. Valerie passed away at 11 o'clock Colorado time last night, and her daughter shared that there were elk surrounding the house, and this was not something that happened frequently. And Karen saw that as a sign of God's embrace of Val and of their family. And so today we, the Church of Jesus Christ, circle their family and, and with one another, share in this divine life, which is really what this text is all about. So let us come together in prayer and await what will come to us in these words. Let us pray. Lord, we give thanks for the breath of life that we share in this sanctuary. And in all the rooms and places where your love abides with us, 
encircles us, holds us. We pray your spirit's comfort and presence with the family of Alux as you have embraced and welcomed her into your eternal, everlasting life. May we hear something of that life in the words that I have prepared and in the words that each of us hears. For you are our rock and our redeemer. And here we are with you. Amen. So there are some verses in the Bible that I will always associate with specific people in my life. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 through 6 will always remind me of my grandmother and her invitation, kind of more like a challenge and imperative to me to memorize the words that she so authentically lived in her life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I was very nervous that I would get that wrong after talking about memorizing it, so, phew, Grandma, we got it. <laughs> Philippians 4.4, 4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. These words remind me of my dad and the way he carried that spirit with him as he suffered from brain cancer. And even though that disease took his life, it did not take away his living. And today's text, John chapter 12, verse 25, also reminds me of someone, a member of not just my family, but our Westminster family. It reminds me of a now young adult youth who who I knew best as a middle schooler and a high schooler as part of our youth program. And appropriately enough, his name is John. And I doubt that he'd want this much attention in a sermon, so I'm going to spare his last name, though if you know Marilyn and Bill, or if you know their other adult son, David, then you know who I'm talking about. Not sure which camera to look at, but hello to this family, (laughs) if you're watching. Now, John's birthday is Christmas Day, 1225. So for John, John chapter 12, verse 25, has always carried a special resonance or significance. We might say it's his birthday text. Often kids with birthdays on Christmas complain because this combined holiday lessens their intake of presents on the holiday. I don't remember John complaining about this, but I do remember him lamenting the fact that his birthday text, John 12, 25, with all of its talk of losing one's life, of hating one's life in the world, was such a downer. And as his youth pastor, I I remember trying to make lemonade out of this lemon for him to to help him to see the gift and good news in this text, but I, I don't think I did such a good job. I think I probably just sounded like the parent who 
tries to convince his or her child to be excited about the brand new scratchy sweater that Aunt Betty sent him for Christmas. Now, for most of us, today is not our birthday, though it is for Malin. So happy birthday to her. In fact, I looked on our database, and it's also the birthday of members Angela, Anne, Jean, and Amy. So happy birthday to you as well. But we know today is not Christmas either. But for all of us, John 12, 25 is our text And the question is, will we see the gift in it for us? A few weeks ago, Pastor Larry preached a sermon on a similar text from Mark chapter 8, where Jesus said, Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. Larry helped us to see that Being a Christian does not necessarily mean we must become a martyr. That even though this kind of dying for the faith has been and will be the path for some, for others, for the rest of us, dying to self can mean something else. It can mean giving ourselves in service to the greater good, both as individuals and as a society and a country and a church. If you're like me, Larry's sermon made the scratchy sweater of these words feel a bit more comfortable. But with the lectionary once again putting similarly challenging words before us, I'd like another chance to help John, to help you, to help me embrace the gift of this hard passage. Maybe even put it on. Those who love their life, Jesus said, will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The question arises, must we really hate our life in the world to share in the life of Christ? Didn't Jesus elsewhere say that loving God means that we shall love our neighbors as ourselves? Yes. And didn't John say at the beginning of this gospel, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son not to condemn the world but to save it so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life and not perish? Yes. John did. So at the outset, and it's very important that we stand firm in this, we must remember that the God of Scripture embraces love of neighbor and love of self. That God of Scripture embraces love of this world and those who dwell in it. Any interpretation of any text that commends anything short of that love distorts and betrays that embrace. And it is to be rejected, renounced, maybe even hated, to use a word from today's text. 
Remember that Scripture tells us that there is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time for love and a time for hate. That there is a season for everything and a time for every matter under heaven, including renunciation. I think it's hard for us in this church and most churches to embrace the idea of not embracing. We prefer a faith of inclusion, not exclusion. And our worship on most Sundays emphasizes assurances of pardon and affirmations of faith, not expressions of condemnation or renunciations of life. You might remember when we had baptisms here. We've actually had 11 in the pandemic, but I don't think you've had a chance, most of you anyway, to see them. And in those baptisms, we ask the parents typically, do you promise independence upon the grace of God to nurture your child in the love of our Lord? And they say, we do. But our liturgy typically leaves out the question, which is in our Book of Common Worship, do you turn also from the ways of sin and renounce evil and its power in the world? This harsh language seems out of place in a moment of celebration, especially when a cute little baby is in our midst. But our omitting that renunciation tells something, tells us something about our discomfort with the notion of renunciation in sanctuary spaces. To love, Jesus seems to be saying, we must hate or renounce that which is not love. To have eternal life, Jesus seems to say, we must reject any living that stands in opposition to that life. If you uh, love the musical Hamilton as much as I do, you might remember what Hamilton says to Aaron Burr. He says, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? Jesus says, if you fall for everything, then what will you stand for? Now, this is not the joylessness that some might dismissively call cancel culture. In fact, the end of this is joy. It is an embrace or turning on what truly animates our best life as individuals and as people. And though our youth named John was right that this text is a downer, it is intended, I believe, for our uplift. That there is joy to be found when things fall. Just ask the Greeks. This is where my sermon title comes into play. If you've wondered what that's going to be all about, it's, it's that moment. Have you ever had Saganaki? Anybody here had Saganaki? Okay, only one. Okay, this, this sermon ref, reference is going to go great. <laughs> okay, I'll start from the beginning. Saganaki. It's a flaming cheese dish that you can order at Greek restaurants. And when they bring it out and when they light it aflame, there's usually this shout, Opa! Maybe you've heard of Opa. 
Opa is a word with multiple meanings, and it, it emerges from what I've learned from the practice of shouting it out in, in, in moments of dining and celebration and performance and music when a plate uh, either falls from the table and shatters into pieces or someone does it intentionally, throws it down. There's a shout of Opa. It's kind of a way of saying that even in the brokenness of fallen plates, there is the sound of praise. And even though the harshness of John's text seems an ill fit with the festiveness of a word like opa, there's an opaphatic spirit imbued in this moment with Jesus and his disciples where living and dying, embracing and renouncing, breaking down and building up are all held together. The culmination of it being this great sound of praise. So the Greeks are on to something when they say Opa. And there are Greeks in today's text who help us grasp some of that meaning. There were some Greeks, it says, in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover festival. And the city was buzzing with anticipation, speculation, wonder. Will, will Jesus come? Will that healer who brought Lazarus from the dead, will he show up even if the authorities want him to die? The Pharisees saw the crowds as he comes in on the colt on Palm Sunday, the celebration we will have together next week. And the Pharisees couldn't believe the fervor the way the crowds were drawn to him. And they said, look, the world has gone after him. Perhaps proving their point, the Greeks in this text crossed the sort of cultural, religious, political lines of their day and approached Philip, the disciple, and said, we wish to see Jesus And in my preparation for this sermon, I've spent a considerable amount of time either being distracted by or helped by the fact that the Greeks never got to see him. Instead of taking the Greeks to see Jesus, Philip leaves them aside and runs to his fellow disciple, Andrew, and tells him, look, these Greeks, they want to go see Jesus. What should we do? And instead of Philip and Andrew saying, come, let's go to see Jesus, they, they leave them aside and they go to Jesus and tell him that there are those Greeks that want to see him. And this seems out of character for Philip and Andrew. They were, uh, in the earliest chapters of the Gospel of John, very eager to bring new people, newcomers, to see Jesus. Philip brought Nathaniel. Andrew brought his brother Simon, Peter. In those chapters, they were bridge makers, but here, they're bouncers. They're in no rush to welcome the Greeks into the fraternal club of discipleship. And we might have expected, upon hearing that the Greeks wanted to see him, Jesus would have pledged his universal love for all people, that he would have invited them into the social, 
But instead, Jesus talks about hating life. Hating life in this world. And we never actually hear from or see the Greeks again. Now maybe John just wanted to contrast the Greeks' desire to see Jesus with the Pharisees' desire to kill him. Or maybe this episode just reflects what was happening in the earliest church where there was this tension between Jewish believers and Gentile ones and how do they reconcile what it means to be a follower of Christ for those who are Gentile. But I think there's a third possibility. That Jesus here actually renounced the Greeks' desire to see Jesus so that they might better embrace what it means to follow him. Jesus makes a big deal. He emphasizes that whoever serves me must follow me. He rejects the idea here, as he will later with Thomas in the resurrection scene, that that seeing is believing. No, Jesus says seeing is not believing. Believing is doing. Believing is participating. Believing is following. The Greeks wanted to see Jesus in the flesh, and Jesus wanted them to see, or excuse me, to share in his life. The word life here is very important. And in the Greek language in which this text was written, there are actually three words for life. The first is bios. We don't see it here in this passage, but it refers to the the flesh and blood of life, the biology of our breathing and beating hearts. The second word for life is psyche. And this is the word that Jesus uses in John when he said that those who love their life, love their psyche, will lose it. And psyche, as you might guess, refers to what we might call the psychological life, the mind, the emotion, the will, and the soul of our being. And to lose that psyche, that life, is troubling. Jesus says, my soul, my psyche, is troubled. It is a death of how we know ourselves to be in the world. I think about John, not this John, but the John maybe watching at home, and how it was very hard for his parents to take him off to college. Of course, they were excited and proud and eager for him to launch and experience life, but there's there's a loss when the child, when the baby and the infant becomes the toddler, and when the toddler becomes the child, and then The child becomes a middle schooler and then a high schooler and then goes off to college and becomes an adult. There's a loss. As a parent of sixth grade daughters, my psyche is troubled just thinking about it. And it's not unlike the death of the psyche that happens to each of us and all of us when we age or grow older when our bodies confront our minds with an entirely different conception of who we are as we become those who must be helped rather than those who must do the helping. 
This is the kind of loss we feel when as a nation, society, or a church are confronted with the, an alternative way of seeing ourselves, perhaps not as the shining city on the hill all the time, but also a land in need of repentance and reformation. Just think of all that we have had to renounce in this season of pandemic. We've renounced being together, of seeing the smiles on each other's faces, of singing, of actually tasting that bread in this place. We have renounced these things. We have suffered these losses for the greater life and health of our community. But all of these losses and deaths are a blow to our psyches. They are a gut punch that Jesus felt too. But he endured it. He proceeded through it because he sought the Zoe. Zoe is not just a kitchen that serves good Mediterranean-flavored salads. It is the third Greek word for life. What we in English call eternal life, the everlasting, imperishable, you can't take it away and it cannot be lost life of God. We hear of that life in John chapter 1 where he says what has come into being through him, through Jesus, through the word, was life. It was zoe. And the zoe, the life, was the light of all people and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus wanted his disciples to renounce the present order of things in the world as it was so as to enter into fullness of that Zoe life, what that will be in the flesh and blood of earth as it is in heaven. So if we put all of this geeky Greekiness together, we might say that Jesus urged us to let go of our psyches to share in God's Zoe, which fills our bios with the joy of Opa. If you left here memorizing that, I would be so proud of you. <laughs> Jesus urges us to let go of our psyches, to share in God's Zoe, which fills our bios with the joy of Opa. Jesus tells the story in this text of a single grain of wheat that falls to the ground. That single grain exerted not a bit of energy to get there. And it actually would have wasted a ton of energy to try to resist the forces of gravity and botany that brought it down. And if the grain had a will if it had a choice, my guess is it would have remained that single seed high on the stem because anything else would have been a gut punch to its conception of itself in the world, a renunciation of everything it knew about itself. But in the embrace of the earth, that single seed pulsed with divine energy it unbound into a great harvest of God's kitchen where fruits multiply and new seeds fall. 
so that they may be lifted up. Jesus urged his disciples to go with that grain. And sometimes that means going against it, against the grain. So for this reason, John chapter 12, verse 25, is indeed a gift for all of us. It invites us to hate some so that we may love so much and so many more. So that we may trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on the psyches of our own understanding. So that we may come to the Zoe feast where plates like seeds of grain will fall and shatter in form but lead to shouts of Opa, which is another way of saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let us try it on. Amen.